This podcast is brought to you by Cyberattacks can be prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. A powerful and lethal earthquake in the region. Judicial reform plan goes wider into the rest of the Jewish world. We'll have a conversation with someone at the center of all of that. It's unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Unit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy Two Jews on the News from Keshe Podcast. Uh, what can I tell you, Jonathan? Just uh, a week of devastating news, really. The pictures on and on television of uh, what has been going on in Turkey and northern Syria. The time we're recording, uh, estimated 20,000 people dead in this tragedy. Just heartbreaking images of people, you know, searching through the rubble, uh, looking for their loved ones. Really just, just terrible. It's one of those moments, isn't it, where whatever the politics uh, that goes on ordinarily, it suddenly, it reminds me of those differences. Do you remember in, in sort of atlases, there would be political geography with all the borders and boundaries, and then there would be physical geography, which would show mountain ranges, ranges and contours with no borders marked on. And this is one of those kind of moments where, forget the borders and the politics between Israel, Syria, and this is just people who live in the neighborhood and suffering the most intense kind of suffering. The other thought I had about it was I remember after there'd been huge political turmoil and just upheaval in Haiti, that country was then struck by a terrible earthquake. Mm -hmm. And you just thought, how much more are these people meant to suffer exactly? You think about Syria, 11 years, 12 years nearly, of the most bloody it's not even right to call it a civil war, but just, you know, deadly onslaught pursued by the government of that country. And those people who've managed to somehow endure that for more than a decade are now hit by this. And as you say, the images of people standing outside, not daring to go into buildings, and it's raining, and it's cold, and there's no homes, and there's no food. And, you know, it's just a desperate, desperate situation. Yeah. Um, and I guess watched closely in Israel, partly for that point I was making about physical geography, mm-hmm. that I noticed there was some analysis written this week saying, you know, the, the seismologists say it's only a matter of time, really, before Israel itself is shaken by a quake just because of the the ground it stands on. Yeah, I mean, first of all, tremors were felt uh, here in Israel. We should say probably that the epicenter uh, of the quake is closer to Jerusalem than it is to Istanbul. So there have been tremors uh, three times today and and earlier uh, all, felt all over Israel. But also, uh, you know, that the fact that there is once every 100 years or so, experts say, a devastating earthquake where we uh, are because we are on the major fault line, the Syrian-African uh, rift. So the last time was the devastating uh, Jericho earthquake of 1927. I think we can do the math on that. Israelis definitely, first of all, we should say, news taking in the story from Turkey and from Syria, many, many, you know, like the, the news is kind of dedicated to that. There are AIDS, aid missions from all the, over the world, including Israel, but also Israelis kind of taking the opportunity to deal with how prepared Israel is for a huge earthquake. Uh, spoiler alert, it isn't. Uh, we should probably mention that uh, up until 1980, 
Israel's uh, contractors were not in any way under any obligation to build buildings that are earthquake-proof. I think this has something to do with the way Israel was built to begin with, right? Like, just to build it very fast and ask questions uh, later. And now what you have is these old buildings being strengthened because the country is giving incentives to developers, but it's happening specifically in uh, lucrative areas like Tel Aviv. And it's happening less in where in the areas it's supposed to happen to protect from earthquakes, mainly the Jordan River and the east of Israel. Did I just give you a yeah. very long lecture about how Israel is prepared or not prepared for earthquakes? Was that what I just did? No, it was very <laughs> valuable and insightful as always. But one of those things where, you know, I mean, you're just sort of at the moment consumed with what's happening now. Um, but yeah, bracing as well for what what could happen. Obviously, people, um, it's funny, when, when, when one of these episodes happens, it sort of I think makes journalists pause a bit about the language we use because we so often use seismological language about politics. We talk about shockwaves mm-hmm. and, uh, and I think it was always a big word in, in, in Israeli politics about, you know, the upheaval and the, that was, you know, when describing election results and so on. So one is wary of doing that, but obviously the, you know, that goes on and is, you know, gathering momentum. It's, it's, it's an upheaval and a shock of a, you know, it's metaphorical, but it's, it's ongoing. Yeah, it is completely ongoing. We have been, as you said, discussing this judicial overhaul for a few weeks now. And the uh, I think the, the story making the most headlines this weekend in Israel is the interview uh, conducted by Israeli journalist Ilana Dayan with the man who was the attorney general of the state of Israel, Avichai Mandelblit, not only Netanyahu's appointee, but also the person who decided to indict Netanyahu and thus turning himself into, in the eyes of Netanyahu supporters, into an enemy of the people. This is an exclusive interview. And in that interview, he said, you know, pretty earth-shattering things. I'll give you one quote out of that interview. He says this about Netanyahu's plans for the judiciary. He says, this isn't a reform. It's a total revolution, a complete change in the type of our regime, a change in our DNA. It is a cancellation of the independence of the judiciary. Only whoever is loyal to the leader, not to the country, will be appointed. It is the most dangerous thing possible, he says. This isn't a democracy. And he goes on to say, when the forest burns, no tree will remain and no one will be left to protect us. These are the words, pretty shocking words, from the attorney general, man who was the attorney general of the state of Israel. I mean, it's huge, the the scale of the critique there. I mean, it's pulling no punches at all. And, you know, each time you and I talk, there's yet another sweeping, scathing condemnation of these moves. I mean, we had Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winner, one of Israel's foremost, you know, intellects, speaking in pretty similar language last week. And I, all I can, you know, on our podcast. And what it just makes me wonder is, you know, what impact does it have? Does people, it's a seven alarm fire now, isn't it? Where people who are absolutely not the obvious, you know, knee jerk reflexive critics of Likud or Netanyahu people, this man was seen as credible enough for Netanyahu to appoint him. As you say, rebranded as an enemy of the people once he did turn critic of his or, or did his job by indicting Netanyahu. I just want to know, is is there a body of people who previously would have supported the Prime Minister who hear this and then pause and think, okay, I've got to take stock, this is too much? Or is it just that he will be written off mm-hmm. as yet another 
arugula munching liberal um that, that's the that's the thing i don't know is right. is when the alarm is sounded like this does anybody listen well i i Obviously, that is the salient question, and we are in a developing story. Uh, you know, as you say, more and more people are added to that uh, bandwagon of the people who are sort of sounding the alarm. I can tell you what ha has been going on. First of all, the president of the state of Israel, Itzhak Herzog, has been imploring coalition to press pause and to say, wait a minute, give us a few weeks, see maybe you can reach some sort of compromise. This has been completely scoffed at by the coalition and tossed aside. Uh, as we said, the coalition is hurriedly trying to uh, move forward with this legislation and pass the first part of the reform this coming Monday, or at least begin the voting on that. Two main provisions, by the way, will are expected to pass. One will uh, deal with the judges' appointee committee, meaning the coalition will have the majority on appointing judges. The other will have to do with deciding that the High Court of Justice cannot interfere with basic laws. This is supposed to happen next week. Now, there are going to be responses to this. Obviously, there's talk about uh, workers not coming to work and, and employers saying you can do that, you know, on Monday. So there are a lot of things going on. I can't tell you if this in any way moves the needle in the Netanyahu base and the people who support this reform. But we reported on the news that $300 million were moved out of Israel by nine different unicorns at this point. It's not a sum that will uh, create a collapse in the Israeli economy, but if it's a part of a trend, then yes, this is moving in a very worrying direction. Yeah. I, I, I think with these moments in the history of a country, you do have, can only look at the internal politics of the side, the team who are actually making these changes. And that to me is the million dollar question. Does anybody break mm -hmm. from within Netanyahu's own camp, within Likud or within one of the partners? That's where I would be obsessively looking. Is there a single person or three or four who stay true to what was the old you know, Herut tradition of liberalism, not in the sense of how that word is understood now, but just in the sense of liberal democratic norms, respect for the rule of law, that kind of thing, who is alarmed by this? Or is there some group of people who just think, I love what Netanyahu is proposing in principle, but it's going to tank the economy, mm -hmm. and therefore for pragmatic, non-philosophical reasons? Are, you know, or does he have everyone absolutely in lockstep? I mean, you know, I think it's a really thin reed to cling on to. But as mm -hmm. at the moment, the opposition just don't have the numbers. So they I'm obsessively interested in whether that's, the governing side can crack. That's true. They don't have the numbers, as you say, politically in the Knesset to block this. They have numbers in the streets. And the question is, are there people in the Likud, people like Galant, people like Edelstein, maybe people like Dichter? There are names of people that are relatively more moderate. They can break. Let's say the a lot of people are putting a lot of pressure on these on these individuals. I don't know if they will, but definitely the feeling is that there are gas fumes in the air, that both sides are very, very intensely in this this story. I could just give you an example. I think we should mention this, right, that Ze'ev Raz was a former combat pilot in the Israeli Air Force, wrote a quote this week. He said, if a prime minister comes along and assumes powers of a dictator, then this p prime minister is marked by death. This is, of course, a very extreme thing to say. He was interrogated by the police. He said, you know, he apologized. He erased this post. But just to give you the, the kind of feeling on both sides, by the way, of how dramatic, how intense this period is. Yeah, no, it's a febrile atmosphere. And mm -hmm. I think, um, 
you know, as I understand it, one of the people condemning that was saying, you know, incitement might lead to bad places was Itamar Ben-Gvir, which is amusing given his whole role in 1995 and the He should know that incitement leads to bad places. Yeah, well, he knows all about it. I mean, he was famously said, you know, we got to Rabin's car, next time we'll get to him. He is an inciter himself, and he's now saying, oh, you know, let's be calm down. Well, now you're getting a taste of your own kind of medicine. Not that anybody welcomes that kind of dark talk. It really Not is. at all. It's, it's alarming, uh, but, I, but I take what you mean about there's a sort of mood in the air. It is a mood. I, I just want to know where that energy goes. You know, the money, the lawyers, the ex-government officials, what can and, they do? And it's not only that, by to, the way. It's, it's like hundreds of, of IDF reservists, right, beginning this march today. People who really lay down, down their lives and their security to protect the state of Israel. Also saying, don't take us for granted. Don't take the reserve forces for granted. This is a movement. For, it's important to say it's not led by politicians. The connection between between the protests or the different groups of protests and the politicians in the Knesset is still very flimsy. That's maybe the advantage of this protest movement and also the disadvantage. So I can't tell you where this is heading. I don't think anyone knows, but it's definitely in the air. Like the, the, the feeling of real tension is in the air. Yeah, there's, there, there is, as so often actually, a disconnect between the politics of the street, the voters, and the politicians in the parliament, they're often the last to know, mm. as it were, when this mood has changed. But um, I've made a mental note of those names you mentioned. And I have to say from where I'm sitting, uh, you just hope that those people somehow crack either that or the Netanyahu himself thinks this is not going to work for me, partly because of his, as we've said on the podcast a couple of weeks running now, I think that it's vital to the sort of Netanyahu's brand that he's the guy delivered economic stability but also you know prosperity and if that is jeopardized he hasn't got that much uh, more to hold on to the other move the other development i think is what we're going to talk about for the rest of our time together and that is this battle being taken to a new front and the front meaning beyond the borders of israel itself into the wider jewish world this is a development i've been waiting for for a long time for other things in terms of israel's own you know conflict with the palestinians etc waiting for that moment where you know the diaspora get engaged but um we have a guest who uh, has sort of you know moved things made a move in that direction Matthew Friedman is a journalist and an author and a friend of the pod. Very important title. We talked to him last time, episode 56. You should check that out. It was about his beautiful book about Leonard Cohen. This time, Mati, we want to catch up because the background noise is not as pleasant. Um, so first of all, really, we, we thank you for talking to us today. It's a pleasure to be here, as always. And always great to talk to you. I, I, we wanted to talk because last Thursday, in shadow of in the shadow of the judicial overhaul, you did something quite unusual uh, for you. You wrote an open letter uh, in the Times of Israel with um, Daniel Gordis, author Daniel Gordis, and journalist uh, Yossi Klein Halevi. And I'd like to read a paragraph out of that. It was written to the uh, Friends of Israel in North America, and you wrote this: Israeli leaders need to hear where you stand. North American Jews uh, and their leaders must make clear on this to this government that if it continues on the path to transforming Israel into a country of which diaspora Jews can no longer be proud, there will be no business as usual. What do you mean by that, no business as usual? 
Well, first of all, it is an unusual step for me. I tend to gravitate more toward, um, you know, human stories on the periphery of people's attention. And the last time we spoke, it was about a strange concert tour that Leonard Cohen gave. So not exactly tackling the political situation head on and certainly not uh, appealing directly to, um, to diaspora Jews. And it felt like a moment that required unusual action, not just on my part, but on the part of those who explain Israel for a living, you know, those of us who interpret events in the country and often spend a great deal of time explaining the country to Jewish people outside of Israel and to non-Jewish people outside of Israel, people who try to understand the country and often struggle to understand it and are are maybe di- disrupted in their understanding of Israel by the amount of bad information about this country that um, that exists. And I was afraid that people abroad were going to dismiss news of this crisis as another fantasy made up by people who hate Israel. And in fact, there's a concerted attempt to convince people that that's what this is. And there, there's really a, almost a campaign afoot in the United States. It's being run mainly through the Wall Street Journal op-ed page to convince people that the the legal overhaul that we're seeing now and the, and the more general campaign being undertaken by this government is nothing but normal politics and it's a minor adjustment and nothing to be you know too excited about. And actually what's happening is Israel is being brought more closely into line with American democracy and other Western democracies, all of which is completely false. So it felt like it, it might require unusual action. So I uh, arranged <laughs> a small cohort of people whose names are familiar to people who um, who consume news from Israel. And, and what we wanted to say was, this is a real crisis. This is a very fraught moment for Israel. It's a real turning point for Israel. The country at the end of this year could be a very different place than it is now. And the country that North American Jews who are the main address for this uh, for this letter. Sorry, Jonathan. Uh, British <laughs> Jews are also allowed to read it, but uh, we address it to North American <laughs> Jews. Um, the, the country that North American Jews have always supported is the liberal Israel of the Declaration of Independence, the liberal Israel that's, you know, maybe most dramatically encapsulated in Tel Aviv and everything that Tel Aviv represents, the tech economy, the, the liberal kind of free success story that Israel has become. And, that country is is under threat. The part of Israeli society that um, that maintains that Israel is being ruptured and feels betrayed. It feels like the government is at war with it. And I've never quite seen mainstream Israelis so depressed and upset by by politics. And I've been here for thirty years, and I've been through a lot here. And of course, you need you need you've been here for longer, and you remember further back than I do, but. I, it seems like a very unique crisis and it seemed to require kind of a unique step of saying this is what's going on and this is one of those moments when the voice of Israel's friends abroad is is important. So let me go right on that last thing you just said because I'm completely with you on the message here that I agree this is something new and different. We've been saying it on the podcast a while. In fact, Tom Friedman the other day said something very similar to what you've been saying, which is the Israel you know of is in danger or maybe even on its way out. The last bit, though, is the idea that the voice of the diaspora will be important. And I say that because I am so used to diaspora Jewish voices. You know, yes, obviously, in small communities like the one I'm sitting in, but even North American diaspora voices being utterly ignored by Israeli decision makers, that even if you were to get the outcome you are, in my view, rightly seeking which is, you know, a loud protest from Jewish leaders, eminent people, thinkers, activists, all of them, 
I'm not sure that, you know, Israeli government, certainly, certainly this Israeli government, but even wider, don't just shrug their shoulders and go, you don't live here, irrelevant, don't care. Israelis, of course, will decide what they want the future of the country to be. And that decision is ours. It's a decision of Israeli citizens. And the government that is in power now is not to my liking, but it is a legitimate government, even if it has less than 50% of the popular vote. It's a legitimate and legal government. And the, the decision will be in the hands of Israeli citizens. However, diaspora Jews can decide what they want to support or not support. And communities in the diaspora, particularly the American Jewish community, offer Israel very significant kinds of support. The two that come to mind are donations, which fund many important projects in this country, for example, hospitals and universities and many other wonderful parts of our society that we don't really think about a lot because we take them for granted. But if you go to any hospital in Israel, you'll see that they're covered in plaques with the names of American Jews. And of course, political support, which in, in America is manifested mainly in the form of an organization called APAC, which wields considerable clout in Washington. And if those organizations approach the Israeli government, whether publicly or privately, and I should say this public letter that we sent this week was preceded by a private letter that we sent uh, with a few other signatories a week before. If those organizations approach the Israeli government and say, listen, if this path continues, there will be no donations, there will be no lobbying. You have to add this to your cost-benefit analysis as you try to tally, you know, the the reasons to go ahead with this and the reasons not to. And what I'd like to do is make that cost column as long as possible. So we already understand that there are going to be economic ramifications, and we're, we're hearing that from financial institutions like J.P. Morgan. We understand that there is there are going to be, um, you know, uh, uh, implications in the realm of international diplomacy, and we're hearing that from people like uh, the American Secretary of State and the French President. And there are also going to be ramifications for diaspora Jewry, and and they're going to look like this. And I would like them to have a concrete list of the immediate costs, because I think if if it's not done now, that will happen in any case in about a year, right? Liberal American Jews will not support a country that looks like the one this government is trying to build. And it would be much better to say that now explicitly and avert this course than to wake up in a year and realize that the fragile but very important bond between Israel and the Jewish world has been ruptured. Mati, you mentioned APEC. And that sort of brings me to the topic of aid to Israel uh, in Congress. Is that also something that you include when you talk about not business as usual? I think that this open letter is addressed to the Jewish community. So it's not mm-hmm. addressed to American senators who decide on you know what to fund and what not to fund. But I think that the Israeli government needs to understand that, that there's going to be a real price to this. And the price is going to be internally. Israeli society might be ruptured permanently, and we might not have a society to work with if this goes, mm-hmm. if this goes through. And I know, Yonit, that you're, you're aware of it, but I've never seen the people who I consider to be the pillar of Israeli society so despondent. People who've served their mm-hmm. lives in the army, people who've sent their kids to the army, people who've lost their kids in the army, civil servants who've devoted their lives to the country, people in the you know state attorney's office, people in the justice system. I've, I've never quite seen people like this. So the, one of the prices of this government's policy is going to be just the just a, a deep and maybe permanent rupture in the society. And there are going to be other prices as well. And I think one of those prices will be uh, major damage to our relations with a Democratic American administration. I'm not sure what a Republican administration would say. It could have repercussions for, you know, important committees and in the Senate where we've had very prominent pro-Israel voices express deep concern about these moves. And it, it's going to have all kinds of costs. And I think those costs need to be made apparent 
now so that the course can be changed rather than having those costs actually paid in a year, which of course is not something that I, I want. I don't want to see Israel's economy damaged. I don't want to see our international mm-hmm. relations damaged. But I think that the government is behaving so recklessly and, in, and so is so wrapped up in its short-term needs and in its, its irresponsible desire for revenge against a big part of the electorate that it needs to be presented with a massive show of force that changes the course of the government rather than some kind of wishy-washy call for compromise or dialogue. There are times for that, but this isn't one of those times. Again, I'm with you on the message here very strongly. And I've, you know, written this myself in the Guardian newspaper where I write and also in the Jewish Chronicle making the case to the Jewish community. But reading your letter and listening to you now, an objection from what I will call the other side comes to my mind. Somebody wrote in one of the Israeli papers that they looked around at the demonstrations and they thought they saw the same crowd they would see at a concert of the Israeli Philharmonic Orchestra, right? And in other words, there is a whole body of Israelis, millions of them, who either voted for Netanyahu or his allies, um, and it's they who you need to persuade rather than other liberal, enlightened folk who are just like the crowd at the Israeli Philharmonic and just like the crowd at the demonstrations who might be living in New York or Los Angeles or London. Instead, it's that much harder to reach body of people who need to be persuaded. And if anything, sending a letter like this almost doubles down on or reconfirms the image, that Philharmonic image they might have of the people who are making the case against these terrible changes. I have to say that I've never been to the Israeli Philharmonic, so uh, I'm not sure about my co-signatories, Daniel Gordas and Yossi Klein Halevi. It's possible that they have. Um, I actually have. <laughs> um, but I actually have to say that I've been at all the protests here in Jerusalem over the past month, and the crowd has been has been different. There are a lot of kippot. At a protest two weeks ago, I was I was next to Ze'ev Elkin, who is a v- staunch right-winger who's in the anti-BB camp. And there were other people at the protest who would definitely not fit into the classic left-wing group that's being described. So the the protests are a bit more complicated. This uh, Saturday night, there's going to be a protest in Efrat, which is a settlement outside Jerusalem where you wouldn't expect there to be this kind of protest. And there will be one. I'm not sure how many people will will show up. So it's more complicated than that. There is something to it, though, which is that the the voting base of the Israeli center-left has traditionally been Jews of European background or East European background. And, and the Likud voter base has traditionally been heavy on Jews whose background is in the Islamic world and who felt excluded from many of the centers of power in the state, including the judiciary, and are more receptive to the idea that the judiciary is not you know, a body for law enforcement, but is actually a rival power center that is unelected. And that foils the will of the people. That's the claim of, of the right, right? These people are, are kind of a deep state. They can't be uh, voted out of office and they foil the democratic will of, of Israelis. And I think you're right. We have to understand that that argument is resonant for people and address that. Uh, I just think that um, if you look at polling information, many Likud voters oppose this reform. The reform wasn't presented to voters before the election. So it's, it's, it's impossible to say that people voted for it because no one knew that it was going to happen. Certainly not not like this. So if you look at the polls and believe them, a solid majority of Israelis are opposed to this change. In fact, the Supreme Court has a much higher trust rating among Israelis than the Knesset does. And uh, the, the reform seems clearly designed to me, clearly designed to meet the short-term ideological and personal needs of the most 
reckless and irresponsible government that this country has ever had. And with all due respect to whatever real concerns exist on the other side, and, and I do understand them, and I even wrote a book that is kind of about those concerns, um, I think that this is a moment to draw a line very clearly and say this move by the government, and in fact, the very nature of this government is incompatible with the kind of country we want. Do, you know, I'm thinking, because you were, we should say, you're in the trenches of like fighting for Israel or protecting Israel in the mainstream media, and you have been for years. Are you concerned that if people like you say something like, well, if this happens, Israel will no longer be a democracy, actually sort of weaponizes the people who have for many years delegitimized Israel and said, Israel is not a democracy? Like, does that, is there a place where you're concerned about that connection? Sure. I, I, I haven't said that Israel will not be a democracy if this goes through. Mm -hmm. I'm being careful about what, what, um, mm -hmm. exactly what I'm saying. I think that the democratic fabric of our society will be, will be damaged, right. not, maybe not. But there are a lot of people who are saying it when yes. they're talking about the judicial yes. overhaul, saying basically it's going to be a democracy. One critique I have of, of, um, of the Philharmonic crowd is that they're a bit too quick to identify their own views as democracy and the mm -hmm. opposing view as views opposed to democracy. And you can see that in the States as well, where it's, mm -hmm. it's not even a debate between legitimate policies. It's really a debate in the minds of many people between democracy and fascism or something like that. So I'm, I'm careful in the language that I, that I use. And the letter does not say that if the reform passes, then Israel will not be democratic. Uh, at the same time, I'm, I'm aware that what you're saying is true, of course, that there are many people who would love to describe Israel as an anti-democratic hellscape. And I deal with that a lot. And I've written, of course, over many, many years about it. And I have done a lot to defend the country in places where I thought the attacks on the country were were wrong or dishonest. But my job is to be a journalist. So I don't work for the foreign ministry and I don't, I'm not an Israeli ambassador. I, I describe Israel and in places where Israel is being described incorrectly, I've tried to step in to help people understand it better. But, you know, sometimes you have to explain that the situation is as grave as people understand, if not graver. And this seemed like a moment where that was being muddied. The, the, yeah. the facts of the situation were being muddied on purpose. And people needed to hear the truth from voices that who they trust and who cannot be accused of anti-Zionism. Basically, what mm -hmm. we were hoping to do yeah, with that sure. letter is give a kind of Zionist hechsher, kind of a Zionist kashrut certificate for anyone who would like to oppose the government. Because what is being thrown at opponents of the government, certainly abroad, is you know the idea that they're they're opposed to Israel, that they hate Israel, that they are part mm -hmm. of this campaign to de delegitimize Israel, which is real. And I wanted to make sure that they could point to some kind of you know, document that says, no, listen, these people agree that our voice needs to be heard. And in this case, we need to defend Israel, not just against Israel's enemies who are real and of great concern to me. We need to protect Israel against a government that threatens to rip our society apart. I'm just on, ter on terms of that restraint about not saying it won't be a democracy. I think you put it well because the, in your letter, you, the example you cite is Hungary. You mentioned Hungary and Turkey and you, you know, Viktor Orban of Hungary says, we want an illiberal democracy. That's the slogan he uses. So I think the danger there is that Israel will become an Orban style illiberal democracy. Yes, there will still be elections. But the other liberal democratic norms that make democracy meaningful, independent judiciary and free press and so on, that's what's being eroded. So I think you've been very careful about it. But I think, um, I mean, just on this point about the Hersher, which interests me a lot, because isn't it the case that the right 
never recognised that. I mean, the, the idea that you have spent, as Yonit rightly says, decades making the case, defending Israel, that will be forgotten in a heartbeat the minute you step out of line and criticise. And I was thinking to myself as you were speaking, you know, those folks in Efrat will be called dangerous leftists. Even though they are literal West Bank settlers, they will be called dangerous leftists the minute you deviate. And, you know, Ariel Sharon makes his disengagement from Gaza. Suddenly he's a dangerous leftist anti-Zionist, you know. So I think that's a sort of battle you always lose. And therefore, this leads me just to sort of, in some ways, go at the same question you only asked, but just from a different angle, which is those people who for years, and you say in some ways they've inured people to criticism and desensitize people because they've for years been saying, look, there's a problem. I mean, I half think maybe those people deserve some credit because they saw this coming. I mean, these are people who are denouncing Netanyahu 5, 10, 15 years ago because they sort of got, got the measure of the man. And were they not perhaps quite prescient rather than desensitizing a listening world? It's an excellent question. And I found myself thinking about a lot about Netanyahu because my take on him, I've never been one of his voters. And in fact, um, I have never had any sympathy for him. But my assumption about him was always that he was, when push comes to shove, he's careful about security. He's a careful and responsible leader where our security is concerned. That's not his reputation abroad. Abroad, he's kind of seen as, as someone with a quick trigger finger. And, and that's not actually true, or it hasn't been true. I found him to be quite quite cautious. And I think he's done a good job in many ways of handling our very complicated geopolitics. And I've been wondering for myself, what did I miss? What was the the black hole in my in my understanding? And I think it was that I never accepted the possibility that the leadership would be completely irresponsible. That I, I always thought that ultimately <laughs> the decisions would be responsible, even if the leaders were ones who I didn't like or didn't elect. And, and the moment when I realized that this was no longer true was the appointment of a Kahanist hooligan from the racist fringes of the right as the minister in charge of law in the state of Israel. Something like that has never happened. The appointment, of course, was made by Netanyahu. And at that moment, that trump card that Netanyahu always had, which was security, he, he threw it away because that move cannot be excused. There are 9 million Israelis, Jews, Muslims. Uh, we all need the police. We all need the law, right? And many of our police officers are are Muslim and or some of them. And you can't do that. And, and that's when I realized that something had happened that I I did not predict, which was the you know utter responsibility of our political leadership and the, the willingness to sacrifice a very successful but very fragile society in favor of personal gain or extremist ideology or a desire for internal conflict. I'm not sure exactly how how to describe it, but I have been thinking about that. I, I have been thinking about how I how I got that wrong and what I and what I missed. Mati, it's always such a pleasure to have you on. Uh, dispiriting content notwithstanding. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd love to do that again in the Wait, future. Wait, can I say Thank something positive so just in case you want something? Yes, positive? please do. I mean, please I feel do. Like we can't end on a on such a dark note. It's been very <laughs> inspiring to be out in the street over the past couple of weeks and to see the you know the powers of the society rallying, unfortunately, again. You know, with this feeling like we're being pushed against the wall, but it's an amazing thing. There have been a hundred thousand people out in Tel Aviv and, and in Jerusalem. 
it's much smaller, but we've had thousands of people of different kinds and people who just care deeply about the country. And there are, every day there's another petition by someone. One day it's the economists and then it's the tech people and then it's the business leaders and then it's the army officers and then it's three journalists who, you know, who knows if how much that matters. But there is a feeling that a big part of Israeli society has been galvanized by this. And, and it's possible that an interesting political realignment is starting mm-hmm. now, one where it isn't a left-right division because the people protesting are are left and right, but a different kind of idea of what kind of country we want. And sometimes that kind of new idea needs to be created under pressure and under extreme stress. So in my most optimistic moments, that's what I think is happening. We so like a bit of optimism on our Exactly. Our Thank you, Matty. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Matty. Thanks Friedman, so much, Matty. Much. Thank you so much for having me. Always very good to hear from Matty Friedman. He's one of those people who's a journalist, yes, but he's engaged and he's, that's also a shift, you know, when journalists get off the sidelines and onto the pitch. And that's the journalism of attachment. It was once called in a debate in this country, not being detached and sort of, uh, you know, as if hovering in outer space, but saying, look, I'm a citizen of this country, I'm involved, and he cares. And it was very, very good to hear his perspective. I agree. And, you know, one of the things I'm just telling our listeners who we've been talking about the judicial revolution five episodes ago from like episode 88. So if you want to go back and listen to that, probably would recommend hitting straight in the middle of episode 90, uh, which was called Beyond Reasonable Doubt, because that's where we give our a pretty long tutorial on what is the judicial reform, what does it mean to change, what do the people who support it think, what are the people who oppose it think. I'll just make one more comment about Mati, you know, the amazing thing, what he's saying, and writing, by the way, is just to make note of the fact that all this is internal strife. Israel is doing it to itself. Israel still has a very long list of enemies. There, We can't afford this, is what I'm trying to say. I'll just remind you that this week, CAA director Bill Burns warned Israelis that a third intifada, warned both sides, rather, that a third intifada could break out in any moment. This, all we're talking about, and this is very substantial things, but this is all internal. Israel really is doing, is inflicting the, uh, this upon itself. So Yeah, and, yeah. and, and Matty was talking, wasn't he, about diaspora reaction. Mm-hmm. The diaspora historically has always been there for Israel when the threat is external. True. You know, Yom Kippur War, 1967 War, people are ready, you know, queuing up to give blood and volunteering and so on. This is a different situation. Um, we should be handing out awards. I can't bear the idea that it's conceivable that you yet again <laughs> Uh, shall I do the? Shall I do one chutzpah thing? I, of course, we have two. We have me doing chutzpah. No, you can do a little bit of chutzpah if you want. Just let take, me do a little bit of chutzpah, just because it was so load, fantastic. Lighten the load a little bit. Lighten the load. I just loved this. Um, I think I don't think this is a parochial, narrow, you know, British point here because I think her name has become an international byword for catastrophic political <laughs> failure. And I speak, of course, of Liz Truss, who was prime minister for forty something days. 49, um, no. I, I, I defer to you when it comes to this, like with numbering of episodes. <laughs> I think you number the days. But some people say 49. I thought it was 44. We will encourage our listeners to go back deep into the weeds here. But, you know, it was not very longer. I think it was three months maximum that she was prime minister. And yet she decides that she has, you know, been in Perda for long enough and now must emerge and break her silence, which she did with a 4,000-word essay in the uh, Sunday Telegraph, a conservative supporting paper, which can be distilled into four words, which essentially was, it wasn't my fault. 
blaming absolutely everyone and sort of saying, you know, that um, the world wasn't ready for her brilliance just yet, <laughs> having crashed the British economy. Uh, and she even said it was the left-wing economic establishment that were to blame. I don't normally quote my own tweets, but I think it sort of summarizes it, which I said, you know, I did a little, little tweet saying, the left-wing gravity establishment was to blame, says woman who jumped off roof. <laughs> um, you know, there are just certain things that you cannot um, counter. And one of them is you cannot give everyone tax cuts and also increase spending and expect the books to balance. That's just not how arithmetic works. Um, and so I think it's a, just a rich chutzpah for her to, you know, break her silence after just a, you know, five minutes, but also to not have any real contrition and say, you know, yeah, British people, I know you're all paying now absolutely through the nose on your mortgages, etc. because of me. Um, but, you know, no apology. I, I love the story so much. It's like someone driving their car off a cliff and everyone's saying, but you're going to drive off a cliff. Just notice that you're driving really fast and you're going to fall off a cliff. And then when they finally crash, they get out of the car and say, why didn't you tell me there were brakes? I mean, this is, look, to her advantage, <laughs> could I just say one thing? At least, at least she didn't blame the Rothschilds. That's the only thing I'm saying. Like she blamed, <laughs> right? She blamed the leftists, the left economic establishment. At least she didn't blame the Jews. Like in this podcast, I say, you know, thank God for small mercies. So that was your okay. That's that's good. <laughs> I like that. And there, yeah, okay, that's a saving grace. Um, I thought what you were going to say was at least she was a woman in charge of <laughs> you know government ministry because Israel doesn't do so well right now. On True. That I'll add my uh, personal chutzpah word, and we'll let listeners decide what they want to choose this week. But this is this chutzpah word is given to the Israeli government. We haven't mentioned them in a while. This week, all of the ministers completed appointing their director uh, generals of their ministries. I think the British equivalent of that would be permanent secretary, I think. Sir but Humphrey. Right, exactly, Sir Humphrey. So out of all of the 31 offices, there is no one female director general, not even one. And when you add that to the fact that in a 31 minister government, there are only six women who are ministers, none of them in top positions. And just to add insult upon uh, injury, we'll also say that when the whole coalition, the heads of the coalition are sitting together, guess what? They're all men. So I'll just add that, you know, people are accusing this government of breaking many things like the judicial system or the status quo between religious people and secular. No one will say that this government is breaking the glass ceiling. So I think we should point that out. Yeah. I mean, I, I, maybe it's a discussion for another day, but the extent to which that's almost I ideological, you know, are mm -hmm. there some sort of theocratic parties who think women have, don't belong in government and in power? What I was also going to say slightly facetiously was at least the anchor of Israel's most watched <laughs> nightly news is a woman. So maybe that's at least one thing, but no, that's a really dismal political picture. Um, we have a choice for Mensch. Yes. On this, we don't have an argument. Um, no, I think it's a consensual choice, and that is the choice of Doug Emhoff, who is rejoices in the title of the second gentleman. He's obviously married to Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States. He gets to invite someone to the State of the Union address given this week by Joe Biden. And his choice, his invitation, uh, was to Ruth Cohen, aged 92, who survived multiple concentration camps, a Holocaust survivor. She lives in the uh, Washington, D.C. area. She's got to know Doug Emhoff. And, you know, I just think that's, it's a good 
way to use the platform he has to remind people of that just uh, a matter of days after Holocaust Memorial Day, Holocaust Remembrance Day, uh, and after he himself, actually, Emhoff, uh, had travelled to Poland, to Auschwitz, along with Deborah Lipstadt, who formerly was a guest on this podcast. Um, you'll tell me which number. Um, and so he, you know, carrying that memory, he took that into the halls of Congress and made uh, that just that moment of awareness for Ruth Cohen. So I think Ruth Cohen is our mensch of the week, but shared with Doug Emhoff for inviting her to the State of the Union. Completely agreed. There are no disagreements on that between you and me. Uh, we're wrapping up our episode this week. We shall say our thank yous to Guy Glaser, Omer Primat, Rom Atik, and Yair Bashar. We will, and we say, spread the word. If you have become hooked, like many others, on Unholy, we appreciate it. Do let your friends know where, and you know, write a review wherever you get your podcasts. No shortage of news mm-hmm. where you are all around the world. We will talk about it all next week. We will indeed. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.